Amen. Well, good to be with you fellas. And uh, yeah, Gene texted me and said, uh, are you coming? I'm like, well, I'm on at 10 after 12. I mean, it's only a minute after 12 right now. So uh, I felt like I had plenty of time. And it is kind of ironic that the topic is patience. So, you know, I, you know, uh, Blake, uh, Blake sent me an email a couple uh, uh, days back and said, hey, would you be free on uh, on Wednesday? And uh, wondered if I would be willing to to speak, and I said I'm always glad to come in and and chat with you guys. And as I was thinking about various topics, we're we're in a season of year where patience is uh, not just a virtue; it's a necessity, isn't it? I mean, we're heading into the Christmas season. I mean, it's hard to believe November starts on Friday. Our 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 bookstore off of the lobby already has three beautifully elegantly decorated Christmas trees. We have skipped Halloween altogether, and, uh, and it already feels like Christmas out there, doesn't it? The weather is kind of crazy. This is the only state I've ever lived in where people are like, if you don't like the weather, just wait, it changes. I grew up in Michigan. People would say that. They'd say, if you don't like the weather, wait, it changes. I'm like, wait, wait, it, you wait months, and it never changes. It's winter there forever. It doesn't change at all. Oklahoma's like, hey, it's a beautiful day. Well, it'll kill you later, you know? And literally, right? It's a pretty crazy state. So, And I guess on Friday it's sunny and 50s again. So it is Oklahoma. But uh, which just made me think this time of year, especially, you know, a couple days from now is Halloween. Some of you guys might hate Halloween. You might think you shouldn't mention Halloween in church, but I've already done it. So I'm going to keep going with it. I grew up in Michigan, as I said, and so every costume I wore as a kid was something underneath a snowmobile suit. So it didn't matter what, I, I could be the $6 million man, and uh, you know, you'd kind of like, so, like saunter up like a robot because you had the snowmobile suit on, and if it was a neighbor who needed, oh, Billy, unzip, I want to see your costume. And literally, I'm not making this up, you'd unzip, and you'd sort of flash them. But you weren't because you were just showing you were, you know, the $6 million man. And then you'd zip up again and they'd give you like, uh, you know, a, a little Hershey bar. I had one neighbor. Don't do this, by the way. If you're this person, I want to care front you right now. Don't. I had one neighbor that would always give a nickel and two pennies. And I remember my cousin and I trick-or-treating together. And he was like, what is this, the Great Depression? What? A nickel and two pennies. What am I going to do with this? So if that's you, please don't do it. You know, just give out a nice Snickers bar. And if you are the type that gives out a gospel tract, and I'm not saying you shouldn't, give really good candy. Because you don't want to be that guy who's like, I give you salvation. You're going to get a nasty egg in your window for that. (laughs) If you're going to give a gospel tract, give a really fantastic candy treat with it. A good, give a full-size Snickers taped to that tract, Okay. Then people are like, I don't know about your Jesus, but your taste in candy is good. And uh, they might they might take a nibble at it. Literally both no things. Raisins, no raisins. Yeah, no raisins. If, honestly, if you're going to give out anything involving raisins, give out tracts to another major religion. All right? Don't besmirch the name of Christ. All right. Let's get serious here. Uh, I can always count on you guys. Um, I'm talking about patience, and uh, whenever I think of the, the patience, I, I cannot think of the idea without thinking of driving. How many of you are in some sort of accident before the age of 18 behind the wheel of a motor vehicle? Any of you guys? There's a reason that the insurance rates for those under 18 um, are pretty high, because 
everybody under the age of 18, and for some men it's under the age of 48, but for a lot of guys, it's, it, as soon as you get in the car, you're A.J. Foyt, you know? I said that the other day, by the way. I said, you're like A.J. Foyt, and I was talking to a bunch of kids, <laughs> and they looked at me like, who's that? You all know who that is, I think. All right. So as a kid, I had my parents' brand new car, and I grew up in Lansing, Michigan, and we had a, a stretch of expressway that was a lot like the Kilpatrick out here, where you merge on and off in the left. Like if you're going down Memorial, you merge kind of on the left to get on the Kilpatrick, because other people are merging off. Whoever designed that should be in jail right now. It's a criminal act, but, but it would also meant that you'd you'd have this long, slow tail of cars merging onto the expressway, right? And that's that's irritating. So I had my parents' brand-new Chevy Cavalier, all four hot cylinders of that car. And, uh, And there was a long line of cars that were merging on, and I realized I whipped over to the right, and I realized if I gun it, I will have just barely enough room to get ahead of everybody. I'll be first on and I will be at 70 miles an hour before I even hit the actual portion of the expressway. Being 16 and omniscient, I decided this was a good move. I whip over to the right and there's a half a dozen cars just kind of slowly trolling along and I accelerate all four cylinders. So I even lean forward to help the Cavalier accelerate. It helps. So I leaned forward, and I almost did a Fred Flintstone. I thought about putting my foot out of the car and kind of help the car. But I got ahead of everybody almost. Because when I, yeah, because when I whipped over, whoever designed that entrance thought it would be a good idea to have about an 8-inch curb separating that which was going onto the expressway and that which was staying straight on the service road alongside it. I caught that curb spot on with the front right wheel of that car. And I went Dukes of Hazard for a moment. It was exciting. I almost had to change my pants because the car hopped up on two wheels just momentarily, not like in the Dukes. They could do that for a mile. My car just went up a little bit and then bam, down again. And when it came down, it didn't feel right. There was something missing on the right side. Rubber was missing on the right side. You know, so I pull over, and of course that long line of cars that was be that I had just beat. They all what? They did what all of us would do: honked and waved. They did the Miss America wave. Every one of them. It was like a parade of people, very smug about watching this barely out of puberty imbecile drive his parents' car. And I get out, and I, my first thought is, maybe, maybe I can get away with this, and my dad won't. Nope. He's going to find out. Because the front right tire, the rim of it, had actually concaved in. I've never since seen such uh, beauty in a rim. But that rim was like it had the fingerprint of the curb. Now, the back right, it didn't didn't do the same thing because the car, when it went up, it kind of did this. And so the back right, it just had three blisters on the side of it, huge blisters on the sidewall of the tire. And the rim was pretty well scraped up and the hubcap was long gone. I don't know whatever became of of that. Both hubcaps disappeared. And so I was faced with a situation where I would have to call my parents. I couldn't sort of sneak the car home and as it turned out, being a high-quality Chevy Cavalier, that car was inches from being totaled 
once it went into the shop because they went, you know, the, the, the whole thing's out of alignment. Both rims are destroyed. Both tires are destroyed. And there was a whole host of other issues. It was, um, I had just worked all of spring break and saved up, which to me was a monumental sum of money. It was just over $200, which almost met the deductible for my dad's insurance. So I remember signing over all those wages from spring break to him and disappointing my dad. And I did it all because of what? Lack of patience. You know, if I was just a simple, patient kind of individual, I would have had that money, which I would have wasted on some oversized stereo for my bedroom, but that would have been a good decision being a man. But we're here talking about patience, and my guess is I'm not the only guy in this room that if if we were asked the question, what are some of your finest virtues? What are some of the things that people would say about you? My hunch is most of us would go, yeah, patience isn't high on the list. You know, some, some of you would go, no, I, this has been kind of a life journey of, me, of mine, and so I am that, but most of us as guys would go, I'm not, I'm not all that patient. It happens on the road when, uh, and especially the Oklahoma road system was designed by the criminally insane. They can't like sync up the lights right, so you're always going to catch a red light. And then the people in front of you, as soon as it turns green, they're knitting a scarf or, or refinancing the mortgage of their home or something. I don't know what they're doing there, but they can't actually, it's the best shade of green and they can't seem to see that. Or it happens that you're in the store, right? You're in the store, and you go into some place like Target, and, uh, and you, you get behind somebody who um, feels the need to measure out and weigh each individual apple they got from produce. So then you go to the next line, and you went from the frying pan into the fire, right? And that one, it happens in stores. It happens in conversations. My mother... Um, my mother can drag out an inane story. Wait, this is being recorded. My wonderful mother can, with great detail, share all kinds of stories, particularly about people I've never met and never will. They live in another part of the country. And, and so, yeah, and I, I would know, my, I care deeply. Whatever my mom wants to tell me. Are you listening, mom? I care very deeply, whatever you say. But... Um, but some of you don't care what the people in your life who you love say. In fact, there's a, you ever seen the movie Princess Bride? Yeah, Princess Bride. It's old classic now, of course. And uh, there's a scene where the couple are, the, the, the princess is being forced to marry the, the evil guy. And so the minister's up there, you know, Mao Edge, and it like drags on. And the prince finally, Prince Humperdinck finally goes, skip to the end. And, you know, they skip to the end. I, when I was a teenager, I used to do that to my mother. She didn't think it was funny, but she'd start telling a story and be like, skip to the end, please. And if she was a violent woman, I would have like had the imprint of a ring on my cheek, but she, thank God, wasn't. Well, we're actually going to turn to something in the Bible about patience. I'm not here just to revel you with fun stories of um, impatience, but in the book of Galatians, this is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote. And he was a, a leader, of course, in the church. Many of you know that. And he wrote a big chunk of the New Testament. And Galatians, by many, is considered the first thing he ever wrote. And so there's this beauty and eloquence to Galatians. It was a letter that was so well put together that we still read it to this day. Galatia, as a province, is in um, the, um, 
the, the, near the capital city of modern-day Turkey, actually. So it, when you think about it, this is a, like a real place, a real point in time, real people that Paul's writing to. And Paul says he had just described it. If you've never read all of Galatians, it's, it's only six chapters. I'd encourage you to sit down and read all of it. It's brilliantly put together. And, and he, Paul spends some time in the fifth chapter talking about all the, the fruits and the, and the deeds of the fleshly focused person, the person who doesn't have God in their life and what their life is like. And so then he turns and he says, now here's what a person who's really dedicated to Christ. This is what, what their life looks like. And he calls it the fruit of the Spirit, which, by the way, this is just for free. It's not the fruits of the Spirit, as in multiple choice. Like, I'm good with one, two, not so good with three and four, but it's all. And in fact, you're only as mature as your weakest fruit. So there's your depressing reality for today. I know. Don't you feel discouraged? I hope you do. I wouldn't be doing my job as a preacher of the Bible if I didn't make you feel bad at some point. So uh, Galatians 5, starting verse 22, this is what Paul says. But the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our life. So this is what a life dedicated to God looks like. Love, joy, peace. Doesn't that sound good? I mean, who can say anything against that? You're like, well, that sounds good. Love, joy, peace. Patience. Oh, I kind of wish he hadn't tucked that one in there. Kindness on certain days to certain people. Goodness. Uh, that sounds good. Faithfulness, right? Gentleness. Uh, I'm not so sure. You know, and self-control. There is no law against these things. But that word patience, compared to all the other ones, the other ones will kind of vote up or down, but that word patience, for some of us, go, that's a fruit of the Spirit? Isn't that just a personality trait? Like some people are patient and some aren't. Is that really the work of God in your life? And according to Paul, it is. And so we're going to look at four questions today. This is our rough outline. Question one, what is patience? Question two, where does patience come from? Question three, how can I develop patience? And then question four, how will patience improve my life? All right, so the first question is this. What is patience? In the, in the old history, historical term for patience, the old the old um, Greek word, if you will, that Paul uses here, is a, it's a good word, it's makrothemia. So let's say that together so that you can wow people with your mastery of the Greek language. It's makrothemia. So we're going to do this on three. One, two, three. Macrothomia. Very good. Man, you guys are brilliant. And all it means is um, endurance, consistency, steadfastness, perseverance. Now, I think that's important for us to know because when we read the word patience, a lot of times we're like, the ability to wait. Yeah, sort of. But more than that, deeper than that, it's endurance. It's consistency or constancy steadfastness, perseverance, or, or forbearance, long-suffering, slowness, and avenging wrongs. And it's a combination word, macros. So like uh, for those of you who studied macroeconomics, that's like the big picture of economics, right? Macros is long or big or broad. The antonym of it is micro, you know, a microscope. You're getting down in the weeds of it. Macro is kind of the big wide-angle lens of it. Lens of it. And thumos is anger or, or passion. So you have um, long anger. And it, it's, um, it's sort of like, have you ever heard the term, uh, that guy has a short fuse, right? We use that term, and what do we mean? It, like anything ticks him off. The, as soon as the light turned green, he doesn't just give a little loving like, 
beep. He's like, and, and he surges the truck forward in the rearview mirror to frighten the people. That's a short fuse person. You ever ridden with that person? And you're like, I am that person. I ride with that person every day. That's why we're having this talk. But, but the macrothemia, the person who has this sort of um, long, it's actually the person has a long fuse. It's sort of like there's a stick of dynamite and 150 yards that way is the end of the fuse. Now the fuse is lit. It eventually, the dynamite will probably go off if the fuse isn't put out. But the fuse just continues. But it's an extremely long, long fuse. If you go back way in the ancient language, the term has the idea of long nose. A long nose. Now, it's not literal. Like, oh, that guy's got a big nose. It's not that. It me- it's long of breath. It means, it, think about it, if something really ticks you off and you're in control, odds are physically you do this. Right? You draw on a breath. Versus the panting of, I'm about to attack and go vigilante. So it's the long nose. It's the deep breath versus the short breath. Okay, so patience means, if we're really looking for a a good solid definition, patience is having the self-discipline to curb your impulsive gut reaction. We all have impulsive gut reactions, but a patient person can curb that. They, they can know, you know, I'd really love to throw this thing I'm working on right now. But I'm, not, I'm going to set it down. I'm going to walk away from it until I can regain my composure. It's really, what it is, is it's power, but power that's under control. Think of it as if you're making pasta and you boil water in a pot. It's the boiling of the water contained in the pot, not the boiling over of the pot that would be the impatience so in other words a patient patient person can still have a lot of energy tucked in there there can be explosive power but it is under control it's not overreacting to the to the rude comments of another person it's not breaking down emotionally when not included in something or something doesn't go your way it's it's uh it's reading something on Facebook, and your first thought is, you're an idiot, but not typing, you're an idiot. That is the, that culminates a lot of friendships in a very bad direction, but it's the person go, I disagree, I'm not going to respond to that, I'm not going to, I'm not going to post a, a disagreeable comment in the other way, I might do that later, I might do that over a cup of coffee, but I'm not going to react. Now, what patience is not, and this is, I think this is important for us, is patience is not the capacity to wait forever behind someone who's texting when the light turns green. Sometimes we're like, oh, be patient. That's not patient. The person in front's rude, and they're holding up traffic. A little love tap that says, beep, get moving. You're serving them. You're serving the community as a whole. It's not patient. I mean it. Now, if you, again, if you honk and surge your truck forward or get out and pound their trunk, we need to have a talk. But, but it's... And it's not to be confused. Patience is not to be confused with the lazy person that's a couch potato that has no drive. There are some people that, that people will say about them, oh, they're really patient. Yeah, they don't even mow their lawn. 
rake a leaf. They don't, they never even, never even occurs to them to get out of bed. I mean, Proverbs said, they, I, I, I'm going to stay in the house. There might be a lion in the street. That's one of the Proverbs. You know, the, they say the lazy person says that. So, no, that's a lazy person. It's not the person, it's, uh, patience is not the person who thinks so low of themselves that they let everyone walk on top of them. That's got it. That's another issue, but that is not a patient person. It's not it. And patience is not something inherited from mom or dad. It's not. It is not a personality trait. It's not a personality trait. It is a characteristic of a person, but it is not so much a personality trait. Okay, so that's what it is. Where did it come from? That's our second question. Where does patience come from? And this one's fascinating because, again, most of us would naturally assume, well, it's just, a, it's just a trait, you know. Grandma was patient, mom was patient, and I got patience. And my sister didn't get any of it. And that's sometimes the story we tell. And, and sometimes that is true that we've learned from, you know, the people who've come before us or, or learned to do the opposite of what people who've come before us have taught us. But, but this patience is actually, it is a quality of eternal stuff. This is, um, this is one of the descriptors that God uses to tell us about himself. And there's a, a great passage of scripture that illustrates this. This is Exodus, the 34th chapter, verses 6 and 7. And it says, he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger. That's in the NIV. That's patience right there. Slow to anger. That's the word abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Now, here's what's interesting about this verse right there and God telling us that about himself in, in that context. So if you go back, children of Israel, they're in Egypt, a whole bunch of them. God delivers them. They walk through the Red Sea. They come out, and now they're in a wilderness area. But this is an entire community of people who've grown up under Egyptian domination and so they have like some screwy religious beliefs of their own that are a fusion of some egyptian stuff and some of their own stuff so they're they don't exactly know who god is and how to please him and so god communicates with moses and says here is how i want to be worshiped here's how the community standards ought to be lived out and so while moses is conveying uh, convening a special council with god up on a mountain and god gives him the ten commandments The people are down, and they're like, where'd Moses go? I don't know. What should we do? I don't know. Let's party like it's 1999. (laughs) And so they end up acting like fools. In fact, there's a scene where Joshua Joshua says to Moses, hey, I think there's a war down there. And Moses is like, yeah, the sound you hear, that ain't war. That's disco music, okay, man. They're having a party. And so when Moses gets down and sees what's happening, you remember the story because you've seen the Ten Commandments. What's Charlton Heston do to the first set of Ten Commandments? He smashes them as only Charles Heston can do, right? Amazing manly man. Well, Moses apparently did that too. And so that's where the movie got it from. Now Ten Commandments are smashed. Moses goes back up, gets another copy of the Ten Commandments, and he brings those down, and that's the context right here, is that God has already delivered the people. They've already developed a track record of disobeying him, and he reveals this about himself. I, I am compassionate and gracious. I'm slow 
to anger. You, now, if it was me and I was God and I delivered the people and I parted a sea and they all came through it and as they're walking through, maybe, maybe it was like that cartoon where they're seeing fish in the water. I don't know. But they're coming through and they get on the other side and I'm giving them manna. I'm taking care of them. And while I'm taking care of them, they turn away from me. I don't know about you. I would smote them. That's what I would do. I would just be like, I'm starting over with a whole new crop of people. These people are losers. That's what I would do. I bet that's what you would do too. But God doesn't do that. He is patient. He is long in the nose. He takes deep breaths. There's a stick of dynamite, but it's a 150 foot or 150 yard long fuse. He has an extremely long fuse. Now, now this is important, and I think, I think um, we need to kind of settle something in our own mind. You'll hear from time to time, people say, you know, God in the Old Testament, such a bad mood. He was always wiping people out. But in the New Testament, Jesus is easygoing. He's so fun to get along with. He goes to parties. He doesn't make anybody feel bad. This is all said by people who evidently have never read the Bible. Because in the Old Testament, God is incredibly patient. And in the New Testament, he's incredibly patient. And in the Old Testament, he's incredibly holy and just. And lo and behold, in the New Testament, he's holy and just. And there were times in the Old Testament that he would put up with all kinds of deviant behavior because he has a really long fuse. And then there were times where he said, that's it, I'm wiping you out. And actually, if you read some of what Jesus said, he's like, if you don't follow me, then take a hike. If you won't do what I tell you to do, I'm done with you. He actually has this one story where he's like, at the end of time, I gather everybody up, sheep and goats, and I separate them. And there's a whole group of people that I say, well done, and you get to come into eternal life with me. And there's another group of people, and I say, I don't know who you are, away with you. And then out of the away with you group, there's going to be people who go, but we went to church, and we did all these things for you. And he'll say, I never knew you. That's the same Jesus. So, so before we get kind of blurred in our mind that in the Old Testament, God's in a bad mood and impatient. And in the New Testament, he's in a great mood and very patient. Same God, same holy God, same patient God, old and new. I think that's important for us to come back to. Because like I said, I wouldn't even mention it except for the fact I get to hear that kind of nonsense so regularly said by even people within a church circle. And it's just not true. I wouldn't want people to say things about me that aren't true. We shouldn't think those thoughts about God because they're not true. He was patient in the Old Testament. He was not on edge in some sort of bad mood. All right, but let me fast forward to the New Testament. Here's the same word patience in the New Testament. This is from Romans chapter 2. This is the Apostle Paul again. He says, or do you, not, um, do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience? There's the word again, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. In other words, why is God patient? Why is the fuse so long? Because what's his real hope? That we'll turn it around, that we'll obey him, that we will actually get on board with him. It's not, it's sort of like many of you, if not most of you in this room, are parents, and you think back to the age when the littles were at home, and it, did you delight in disciplining them? Probably not. I mean, unless you're a psychopath. Most of us don't enjoy that. We far prefer obedience from our kids. And there were some types of discipline that we would give warning. Hey, keep this up. And I'm going to make you live with your grandma. 
You know, I maybe maybe we wouldn't say that. You know, I've only said that twice, uh, and only to the middle. No, I'm totally kidding. I've said that to any of my kids. But but what do we want? We're patient with our children. God views us as His kids. He's patient. He reveals us about Himself. He's got a really long fuse. Um, in in Second Peter chapter three. Verses 14 and 15, he says, uh, Peter says this, So dear friends, since you're looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, blameless, and at peace with him. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. Why is he being so patient? Why is it that he, ha- he said he's going to come back again? Why hasn't he come back yet? Because he's patient. He wants to see more people have an eternal relationship with him. He wants more people to have salvation. Just as, just as our dear brother Paul, this is what Peter says, just as our dear brother Paul wrote to you with the wisdom that God gave him. So where's patience come from? It comes from God. It's, in other words, it's imparted into our humanity. God said at the very beginning of the story in the first couple chapters of Genesis that I'm going to make people, man, in my image, in our image. And so we're image bearers of God. And part of that image, part of the quality and characteristic of God is he's patient which I, for one, am thrilled to learn because considering eternity is eternity, to be in the presence of the most powerful sovereign God, but to know he is a patient God. Amongst all the other characteristics, I find that to be incredibly comforting. Now, this is a quality animals don't get. We get patience. Animals get instinct. They don't get the quality of God. It doesn't matter how, like, patient. You, some, I've, I've had people like, you don't know my cat. My cat's patient. To which I respond, I know every cat. All cats are the same. Evil creatures. <laughs> awful, awful. They are not patient. They are only trying to work out how to kill and eat you. That's a cat. And dogs aren't patient either. They're just like dogs. They're just like, I'm good for whatever. Whatever, you want to do that? That's fine, you know. But people... People, as image bearers of God, we get this quality in us. And furthermore, Paul calls it the fruit of the Spirit. Where does patience come from? God is the source. It is the fruit of the Spirit. In other words, it's the Spirit who grows this up inside of us. All right, so that's, that's uh, what it is, and that's where it comes from. Question three is, how do I develop patience? You might go, I'm not a very patient person. How do I develop it? And, and it's easy. You don't. You don't. They, the old Stoic philosophers, the old Roman and Greek philosophers, they were like, they were in love with patience. And they were always trying to work out how to develop patience. And they were coaching people on patience. But ultimately, developing patience, there's little tricks and things. You can count to ten, and you can hold your breath, and you can do all these things. And they might be of assistance, but actually internally becoming a patient person, that is not something we in ourselves do. This is something that has to flow from within. You know, if, uh, if you've ever gone on a diet, what usually is a diet built around? It's built around a laundry list of things you're not supposed to eat, right? That's what a diet is. Rarely do diets start from the place of, I want to live a different way. Most diets are, I want to fit those clothes again. And so in order to do that, I'm not going to eat cake. In particular, I'm not going to eat that cake, that delicious chocolate devil's food cake. I'm not going to eat that cake that I'm holding in my hand right now and caressing subtly, awkwardly. I'm not going to eat the cake. Where'd the cake go, right? 
Isn't that what happens? Because when we, when, we, when we fixate on the thing that we're trying to avoid, we get fixated on the thing. And it doesn't work. It never works. If you're like, oh, I'm not going to covet that guy's car. Next thing you know, you're trying to hotwire it. I've caught a couple of you. Okay, I've caught none of you doing that. All right, so how do we do it? How can we do it? If we can't hammer it into ourselves, what can we do? And this is where Paul is incredibly, incredibly helpful. In Romans uh, 12, this is a, if, if, you, if you have a couple of verses that you sort of commit to memory or you just focus the rest of your days on, these couple of verses in Romans 12 deserve your attention. And this is what Paul says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in the view of God's mercy, mercy. And I can't even encapsulate the therefore. Whenever you see there, there's an old statement. Whenever you see a therefore in the Bible, you've got to ask yourself what it's there for. Well, therefore of Romans 12 is Romans 1 through 11. So read that on your own. But as Paul has built this incredible, incredible theology, he says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Now, that's a funny expression. If you've been around the church and you've heard that verse before, you're like, living sacrifice. That sounds very good, yeah. But to the early hearers of a living sacrifice, there was no such thing. You didn't take your little lamb to the altar, slit its throat, and throw it on fire, and then afterwards be like, where'd the lamb go? I'd like to take the lamb home now. It's ash now. It's gone. But Paul tells us to be a living sacrifice. We don't crawl off the altar. We try a bunch, but we're to be a living sacrifice, not a dead sacrifice, a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, Paul says. That's quite the motivation. My motivation is to be holy and pleasing to God. Paul says that's a true and proper worship. Oftentimes on Sunday, and Blake gets to host the services, I get to host the service, a lot of times we'll say, hey, what a great time of worship, or as we continue to worship God and the giving of our tithes and offerings, and we mean it, but real worship isn't the songs and the standing in the sanctuary of the building. No, no, true worship is to present yourself. That's the true and proper worship. And so Paul says, don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, because it's always trying to conform you but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. And there is, there's just a bunch, there is a bunch in here. But the, the key takeaway of that section, like I said, I encourage you to read it and read it and read it, commit it to memory. The key takeaway of that section is, if you want to see different outcomes of your life, there's got to be an internal transformation. There's got to be an allegiance shift internally away from what I want and what drives me and a focus on Christ. And now that sounds like pious and spiritual and churchy and like just what I expect a church guy to say, but it works. It actually works. It practically works. When you can change your inner disposition and the focus of your attention, the focus of your soul, your purpose in life shifts there's a ripple out there's an absolute transformation externally that takes place and what happens is is it's interesting is over time that the gradual shift it doesn't happen instantaneously for everybody sometimes it does it's amazing i mean sometimes god moves into a person's life and boom they were this way before and now they're this way but 
But for most of us, there's this gradual transformation as we say, you know, I'm going to deny myself. I'm going to put I'm going to put myself on the altar and offer myself to God. And my question will be, God, is this the right thing to do? Is this pleasing to you? Does this bring you honor? Am I truly obedient to you? And that's like this comprehensive picture. Then the outcome of it is all of the characteristics. There's like fruit that buds off of the vine of our life because we're attached to God's vine. And so this happens often by the amount of energy and time internally we focus on God. So what happens is, is so for instance, if, if you wanted to um, learn anything new, you go, I, boy, I don't know how to do something. I have a friend that's learning how to weld right now. And it's fun, he posts these pictures on social media of his welding exercises, and he's, I, he's done really well in a short time. I, how many of you have welded in your life? It, it's not easy. I, I have welded things, and it looks like a toddler got a hold of a, of an, of a torch. It's not pretty. And, and, uh, but if you want to become good at a craft, call it welding or call it anything, it's going to be the amount of effort, energy, focus you put into that. You can't be sort of like an occasional welder pick up that torch every now and again and then wonder well the last time I welded was two months ago and this thing looks like junk what's going on I welded once before for 30 minutes and it looks like I don't know what I'm doing well of course you haven't put anything into it yeah the apostle Paul again and I just I his teaching is so helpful in this regard he says this he says that um this is second Timothy three sixteen and 17 he's he's talking about scripture here what we would call the bible and he says all scriptures god breathed and what's it useful for it's useful for teaching in other words telling us how to live our life it's 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 useful for rebuking you ever you ever read the bible and it steps on your toes because it does that to me all the time i'm like man i feel like i'm a pretty good person and then i'll read the prophet jeremiah and i whoa he he doesn't it's like he doesn't care how i feel it's good for correcting. In other words, you're off the path a little bit, and it, and it kind of gets you back on the path. And training in righteousness, it tells you what righteous is. This is really helpful that, that we have something that's so old to do this. Because I think to myself, I pity the people of the world. I do. Because you just think in the last 20 years, 20 years ago, what was totally acceptable and 20 years later, what is not acceptable? Just 20 years has gone by. And there's a whole lot of people, thanks to cameras and the Internet, that things they said, things they did. You think of some of the, uh, like the prime minister of Canada just barely, barely squeaked by and kept his job because he dressed up in what was today considered racially insensitive as a costume. That 20, 25 years ago, nobody was talking that way. But what happened? The world, the world constantly is tweaking and changing its value system. And what was fine over here, the groups that you could make fun of over here, now this will cost you a career. The, the, what used to be considered right and moral over here isn't anymore. And what wasn't is, it's dizzying. It would be so hard to keep up with. And the scriptures, as ancient as they are, they train us in righteousness. They tell it's a timeless quality. If you live in consistency to them, there are times where you look really strange to the world, but at least, at least we have the consistency of, of God's word. 
And, and a great reminder is every now and then people are like, well, God's on our side. Oh, heavens no. No, we try to be on his side. That's our goal, is to be on, on his side. Because he's already described what right is to look like. We don't describe to him what right looks like. In fact, there are many times I've thought it'd be great if God functioned like a democracy. And uh, he does not. It is a benevolent dictatorship, but a very loving, benevolent one. And so if we have the scripture before us, this will instruct us to not be conformed to the pattern of the world. Because the pattern of the world is the law of expediency. Whatever works, that's what matters. Or the law of what feels good to me versus what is good for all time. Or the law of my own opinion versus God's clear and timeless order. All right, so, so now that leads us to question four. And, uh, and that is simple, is how will patience help me? And patience, uh, what's interesting, that again, turning to the writings of Paul in Ephesians 4, 2, he says... In regards to other people, in relationship to other people, and this is like, this might be the verse for Thanksgiving and Christmas for some of you. How many of you plan to spend the holidays with at least somebody you find irritating? Come on, you can be honest. There's no cameras, and no one's going to rat you out. There's going to at least be a person around the table at some point that if this was the game survivor, you'd vote them off the island before they ever showed up. Or you have to go to their house. Or you know you're the person at their table. Like, they'd vote me off, and I only go because they know how to make good turkey. But the truth is, I really can't stand them. One of the qualities that is definitive of the Christian is our ability to interact with people, the people we love and the people we're learning to love. And so some of those, some of those people that, that just kind of get on our very last nerve what the Apostle Paul, he gives us some good instructions here. He says, be completely hum- humble and gentle. This is Ephesians 4.2. Be completely and humble and gentle. Now that, that's a good, like, you expect a guy like Paul to say that. But if you think, if I, if I adopt a spirit of humility, I don't know everything. I, one of the surprises of getting older is realizing how little I know. Now some of you have gotten to the other side now, and now you know everything again. But I'm not there yet. I'm at the point where I, I, I joke all the time, man, I wish I was in college again, because that's the last time I knew everything. But as I've gotten older, I realize I don't know everything, and I have a lot to learn from other people. That's this, that is what Paul's talking about with humility. Is It's not a false modesty, and it's not a low self-esteem. It's just a realization that not one of us has what everybody needs. We need each other, and that requires humility. And then gentleness, because... Boy, in our culture today, it's, it's pretty tough. We're not gentle people in our culture. At least, uh, at least on social media, we're not gentle. Sometimes, you know, sometimes there's the person who's a lion on Twitter or on Facebook, and then you talk to them in real life and they're a lamb. There are those people. But, but to be gentle in all facets of our being. But this is right tucked in the middle of it. Paul says, and be patient. Have a long fuse. Bearing with one another in love. In another place, he talks about um, some of the tensions that happen when someone does something wrong. And when, he, when Paul instructs on how to, how to approach that person, he says, go in a spirit of humility, just recognizing that you might be on the receiving end. That's in Galatians, uh, the sixth chapter. You can look that up another time. But for us, to grow in patience is to also look at another person and recognize, you know, while I'm in process, they're in process. And so I, 
in my interaction with them, am not going to be a patient person. I'm not going to be a patient person because I will it in my life. It's going to become truly the fruit that, that emerges from my life, not a life dedicated to a characteristic, but a life dedicated to God. As I yield myself to him, he can do some stuff. It can flow out of me. And if it's not growing in my life, that, that means don't try to work on patience. Try to work on that relationship with him. And gentlemen, that's all I got. Any uh, comments or questions or smart remarks before I pray over us and send us on our day so you can run out and get your Halloween costumes? I like that. That's a, that is very true, is that, that it, an area where we can grow in our capacity to love others. I, the way of Jesus, the way Jesus kind of puts it is like, hey, if you're throwing a party, don't just invite your friends. Invite people who really need it, not just the people who can pay you back. So in a sense of, you know, sitting with people, that's a good one. You can learn a lot. Um, You can learn, you can grow in your love for others, being around people that require God to be in you to love them. There's some people that you're like, I need God at all times. But when I'm around this person, it's pretty natural and easy. But when I'm around, one of my... um, one of my uh, uh, experiences growing I grew up in a, a slightly or mostly dysfunctional family, and uh, I had a particular family member that was always, it was, whenever we were together, there was always sparks, it was always difficult, and it wasn't always their fault for sure. It, I brought a lot to that equation too. And then I was reading when um, Jesus had sent out his disciples to do a miracle, and they tried to drive out a demon, and it didn't work. And then they come back and they're like, why didn't it work? And he says, well, that type requires a lot of prayer and fasting. And so I took that to mean the next time I'm in a small space with this person, there's going to be a lot of prayer and fasting. So I enlisted some friends. I'm like, hey, I'm going to be with this person. Would you pray? And when you know, that was a big piece of, you know, being, it isn't just being around the people you love. Sometimes being around the people you want to learn to love that helps in that so yes that's right that is a rule if i in fact if i get in a line with you i'm going to slow that line down i don't know what it is if i get into the self-serve line the machine will break so that's why i like to go to walmart where all the lines take an eternity all right on that note let's pray father thanks for this group of uh, men it's just so good as guys to get together to pray together to eat food together to fellowship together and to dive into your word and so lord let the let the scriptures speak to our lives and let your words that were uh, moved along by the Spirit of God in these original authors, let those be instructive to us to transform our lives. We pray that as uh, men who are about to embark upon perhaps the busiest holiday season of the year, that we would be men marked by patience because we're men marked by Christ. And in whose name we pray these things. Amen.